everyone. My name's Dan, I'm the minister here. I'm, I think I've met most everybody, but if I haven't, it's lovely to have you at church today. And uh, as we open God's Word, got a question, what comes to mind when you think of Noah's Ark? Kathy, have I got slides coming up? There we go. What comes to mind when you think of Noah's Ark? This is what I think of. Um, I think about Noah's Ark when our kids were little. They're so cute, aren't they? You know, the animals are smiling, and uh, God makes uh, God tells Noah to make an ark, and, and the animals all go up, and there's two of each, and they all smile, and then the rain comes down for 40 days and 40 nights, and then God makes a promise that He will never again flood the earth, the rainbow comes, and is that all there is to the flood story? Is that all there is to Noah's ark? Can I close the Bible and we can just move to coffee? Is that how it should work? Um, or is there more to learn? Well, I think Noah's Ark is one of the most uh, well-known stories in the Bible, or at least maybe the most recognized. I'm not sure that people really know the story and what happens deep down in it. Um, and for us, I think, as we come to it today, the same as every time we come to God's Word, um, every time we open God's Word, He will reveal new things to us. And he'll teach us every time we sit under His Word. And I think there are lots of things that we can learn from this flood narrative. Um, interestingly, it's, it's a long story. It's four whole chapters. Um, we're only up to Genesis chapter 6. We've spent seven weeks on the first four chapters, and now there's a four chapter story about the flood and so I think God really wants us to learn something from it um, and so I want us to not sort of discount this flood story as a children's story but I'm hoping it will teach us today as it reminds us of an important truth which is about the genuine corruption that sin does in the world and in us as much as this story reminds us about God's boundless grace so why don't we pray that God will draw us into the story of the flood this morning as we open his word let's pray our Heavenly Father, we come to you with open, open hearts, open minds. We're ready to hear you speak to us through the Bible. Will you recreate us in your image today as we hear you speak? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we have been focused on Genesis 1 to 11 uh, over the past sort of six or eight weeks. Uh, these chapters teach us about the foundations of the earth and the foundations of what we understand about God and the foundation of what we understand about ourselves as humans. And um, as we come to this flood story, it's important to remember the backstory of what's happened in Genesis so far. So after all of the goodness of creation, chapter 3 turned our attention to a foundational problem in humans, which is sin. And recall creation narratives, God, God makes men, He makes women in His image, He blesses them, He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth, and God declares over humanity, this is very good. But then in chapter 3, that goodness of creation is undermined as Adam and Eve question God's word, and uh, he question, they question God's good word to them, and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they become like God in some way. Um, now they know the pain of difficult relationships, and the disappointment and frustration of death, and what was very good becomes bad. And the bit of the Bible that we skipped, we, we haven't read the rest of chapter 4 or chapter 5, but when you read it, that badness is both repeated and multiplied in Adam and Eve's offspring. So last week we read about Cain murdering his brother Abel. And then in the generations that follow, within just a few generations, we meet Lamech, 
who's just like his uh, great-great-great-grandfather Cain, only exponentially worse. So have a look, this, this guy Lamech. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my voice. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain's avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. This in chapter four. So Lamech, this guy, he's excessively violent. He repays a wound with murder. And then he boasts of his killing to his wives. He brags that he'll avenge himself 77 times if somebody tries to come after him. And, and unlike Adam and Eve, who enjoyed a one flesh relationship, just a husband and a wife, now Lamech is the husband of two wives. He's a man who takes whatever he wants. And that brings us to chapter 6, which, brings, uh, which is another story of taking what was not permitted. And I just want to spend a minute on Genesis 6, 1 to 4, because it's interesting, but it's not the main topic for today. Have a look at chapter 6. I don't know if you noticed this bit. When humans began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Um, the very first week I ever went to church, um, I went to Bible study. I was in 10th grade and um, I just started to go to church. I knew nothing about God, knew nothing about the Bible. And some boys in my group asked the youth minister about this verse. <laughs> what does it mean, they said. I think they were trying to catch him out or they just relished in the weirdness. Um, but it seems like these verses are talking about angels getting married to human women. Um, and so we ask the question, who are these Nephilim in the next verse? Um, Nephilim in verse 4, um, sometimes I think they're described as giants. Um, are they beings who are half angel, half human? Um, as young boys, we're excited by this possibility that, you know, it's almost like Greek mythology, but it's in the Bible. Um, well, that's kind of what we're like as humans. We ask all the wrong questions, don't we? Um, so when we look at this, um, this is... Uh, a detail that we're probably not meant to fixate on, which is why I'm talking to you now about it. Um, <laughs> uh, it's not the story of the origin of superheroes, although it sounds a little bit like it. What we've got in chapter 4 is actually a very sad story of creation rebelling against the way that God has made things. And I, and I take it that this is angels stepping out of their God-ordained roles in the spirit realm to step into the world of human flesh and mortality. I, I think it's a story of angels seeing something beautiful, something they want, and taking it. Just like Adam and Eve saw something that they wanted and took it. Um, it may be that this is talking about polygamy. Maybe they took any of the women that they chose. Maybe it was more than one. And I think uh, as spiritual beings, you can imagine these half angel or, you know, fully angel, whatever they are, fighting. You know, we often hear about God's hosts fighting for God's people. If you have these angels fighting in human flesh, well, of course, they become known as the heroes of old and men of renown because they're not humans. And perhaps they wanted humans to worship them in the way that only God deserves to be worshipped. Um, and I think we still see angel worship these days with people putting their hope in angels to look over them rather than God himself, the one who commands his angels. Um, the book of Hebrews warns us against angel worship because angel worship subtly undermines our trust in God because it's God who provides. Now, it feels strange to talk about the idea of angels marrying humans as if it couldn't possibly be real. Um, some commentators have 
gone a different path. They've suggested that this is, um, so in chapter four and five, we get two lines of people. We get, um, we get Abel's, sorry, Cain's descendants, and they're kind of uh, ending Lamech, the evil guy that we just read about. And then there's Seth and his children who end in Noah. And so it's like there's an evil line of humanity and a good line. And some people would suggest that maybe this is the godly sons of Seth's line marrying the evil daughters of Cain and Lamech's line. Now, I'm not sure that that's correct because, little nerdy moment here, 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter 2, the apostle Peter connects Noah and the flood to fallen angels. You can read about it yourself. Our minds boggle though, don't they? Um, about imagining something that's so far out of our realm of experience. Um, is it so far out of our, our experience? We do believe in a God who became human, was born to a virgin. We believe in resurrection. So is it so weird to imagine angels with people? Who knows? Now, that's the strange bit done. Um, because that's not the catalyst for the flood narrative I don't think I think we find the real cause for the flood in Genesis 6 verse 5 and 6 so the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time and the Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled that brings us to our first idea, human wickedness. Um, often when we think about sin, we, we think about ourselves as fundamentally good, um, especially compared to what other people have done. Um, so we may not be perfect, but, but we're not Cain who murdered his brother. We're not Lamech who would kill a young man for wounding him. And I think that's often how we think about sin as well. You know, we put ourselves on this continuum of good behaviour. Um, And so we put Cain and Lamech down one end and we put Jesus up the other end and we find ourselves somewhere in the middle. Um, We're not too bad at all. Or, you know, we compare ourselves to Pol Pot or or Hitler or Stalin and we know we're doing much better than them. But Genesis 6, I think it's a kick in the guts for anybody who thinks they're doing well in the godliness game. Because when the Lord looked out over creation, he, he didn't sort people along a continuum. Um, He doesn't sort of weigh humanity on the scales of justice and and he finds some people doing quite well and some people are a bit naughty. God doesn't look out on humanity and see a bunch of people who are just trying their best and, and, you know, trying to get education and, and, you know, make a family and be happy. That's not what God sees. See, God looks out on creation and he saw wickedness. It's right there. God sees the wickedness and how great the wickedness of humans had become. He doesn't just see one wicked person amongst a sea of really nice people. He doesn't see good people doing wicked things from time to time. God looks out over his good creation, his very good creation, and he sees that it's been ruined and spoiled, and it's corrupt to its very core. Now look again at that, the words in the middle. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil and all the time. You've got to let it sink in, don't you? Every inclination, only evil, all the time. Is that how you think of yourself? 
God is telling us something about the nature of Adam and Eve's sin that has been transferred into all of humanity. That sin has infected all of us. Um, There's not a part of us that remains uninfected by sin. Sin is the original pandemic, has a 100% mortality rate. Because sin is at the core of who we are. Um, Theologian and uh, philosopher R.C. Sproul said, we're not sinners because we do sins, right? We're not sinners because we sin. We, We sin because we are sinners. It's who we are at our core. And so it's not like we're good Um, We're not sort of born good and and once we do a sin, that's when we become a sinner. No, instead the Bible teaches that that we're born in a sinful state, in the the state of sinful rebellion to God, born under under sin's curse and, and, and born into spiritual death. King David puts it like this in Psalm 51. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's kind of weird to think about babies being born sinful it sort of doesn't even make sense but we're not talking about doing sinful things right it's it's about being born with this heart attitude that is radically opposed to God that radically rejects God a a heart attitude that is profoundly and radically corrupted by sin Um, that's what original sin means Um, some people call it the, the doctrine of total depravity but whatever we call it it's still the same thing and so it's what uh what the Apostle Paul said in Romans was the reading that Adrian brought us. So in Romans chapter 3, he reminds us, he says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's, there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. And together they've become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one person. Not even one. I put the picture that I used for, for Cain last week. It's not just Cain who's evil, is it? could be any of our pictures up there and sin has left humanity radically corrupted and radically orientated away from God and radically oriented towards our own interests um, Genesis six eleven puts it in the same way now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and it was full of violence and, and God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways um, brothers and sisters I would love to stand here and smile a broad smile and tell you, you are good people deep down inside. You are good. You're wonderful. But if I did that, I'd be a false teacher, wouldn't I? I wouldn't be telling you what the Bible tells us. I wouldn't be telling you what's absolutely clear right here in Genesis 6. I'm not trying to be depressing. I'm not trying to be depressing. God wants us to understand deeply to our very core the effects that sin has had on us as a person as every person and if we believe anything less than this radical wickedness of humans we're fooling ourselves and we're creating our own kind of truth about the universe and not acknowledging things the way that God sees them and so to go back to that verse again no it's not there Um, yeah the Lord saw that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time um Here's my second big idea, which is that I think this is a deeply troubling passage. I don't know about you, I think it's deeply troubling. And not because, no, I think it's because we want to think well of ourselves. And, you know, we all know people who do good things. We know non-Christians who do noble things. And we're uncomfortable with the idea that we're sinful to the core. And God is uncomfortable with it too. In fact, he's deeply disturbed by what he sees. Look at verse 6. 
So the Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Let's see. I think I've lost a passage. No, not there. Well, verse 6, the Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. What does it take to trouble God? What does it take to trouble God? Um, again, going back to my year 10 Bible study, um, the guy asked, uh, the, the boys in my group, we all asked um, the usual questions about our, of our youth minister, can God create a rock that's so heavy that he can't lift it? Because, you know, that would be impossible. Um, and if Satan walked into the room, what would you say to him or what would you do? And that other question that, you know, year 10 has always asked, who would win in a fight between Jesus and Superman? <laughs> but what about the question that's staring us in the face in Genesis 6, verse 6? Is it possible for God to have regrets? How bad must things have been for God to regret creating humanity? Um, what are the things that leave God's heart deeply disturbed? Um, what we see in Genesis 6 is that God can indeed have regrets. It's, I don't think he regrets everything he ever did every day or anything, but, but God's telling us that our sin really makes it hard on him. It really makes it hard on him as, as he balances his love for us on one hand and, and his righteous anger at our sinfulness in the other. Um, I worked with somebody uh, a number of years ago whose adult child had spent many years addicted to illegal drugs. And um, she agonized over how to help their son. Would they give him money? Would they pay for rehab again and again? Should they take him back into their home? Should they give him up to the police when they found out that he was selling drugs and had stolen from them? This woman and her husband, they, they agonized over what to do. How do you deal with a problem? They love their son deeply and they, they struggled to watch him go on destroying himself. And I think that's how God sees us, like this loving parent agonizing over what to do. Um, and so this is where my picture comes. In the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, God um, deliberates. Um, he, he uses that same idea of a parent and a child. He deliberates over whether he's going to bring judgment on Israel. Um, it's a time of the kings when uh, a lot of the kings were leading God's people astray and he eventually exiles them. But God describes Israel, his people, like a child that he raised and fed and, and he bent down to kiss them and, and he taught them to work and uh, to walk. And when they, when they got the boo-boo, you know, he put a bandage on them and he loved them and he looked after them. And now as they've grown up in their sin and in their turning away from him, God has to work out what to do. And he says this, he says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? He says, my, my heart is changed within me. It's all churned up. All my compassion is aroused, God says. But he says, I will not carry out my fierce anger. We'll come back to Genesis 6 where God has a similar dilemma. How does the, how does the loving creator deal with his beloved creatures when they're destroying themselves and destroying each other? How does the righteous God bring justice to a world of violence? How will he reestablish the good order of creation and reestablish human flourishing and blessing and goodness? Because surely those are all things that we want, right? They're things that we all want. And so to achieve those things, God actually has to banish wickedness. God has to banish wickedness. He has to remove wickedness. He has to deal with wickedness so that nobody's hurt by it any longer. And justice, right? It's this good thing when we see guilty people receive the wages of their sins. 
the harder thing is to accept that we all ought to stand under the judgment of God for our own sin. But that's the reality of what God faced as he looked out over humanity. So it wasn't just a, a portion of humanity that judged deserved his judgment it was everybody and so look at verse 7 the Lord said I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I've made them story of the flood it's far from a moralistic story not just a little colorful bible story we've just focused on the first few verses today and I don't want to just skip ahead to, to the rainbow because we need to hear what God's saying to us. Um, if, you ha- if this is the first time you've heard it, I want you to go back this week and spend some time in chapter 6 to 9 of Genesis and read, it, read over them, pray over them. Maybe your Bible study needs to talk about them or maybe you should talk about them over the kitchen table. And then next week we'll come back and we'll finish the story because Noah's Ark is a story of hope and mercy and God's grace but it'll only be ever be a kid's story to us unless we do the, the work of understanding the depth of our own depravity and the way that it deeply disturbs God. We need to understand our sin so that we know why we need Jesus. So would you pray with me now that God does that work in our hearts this week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear this deeply disturbing story about sin and the corruption of humans... Help us to understand ourselves. Help us to understand our hearts. Help us, not to, help us not to shy away from who we are or what we've done, but to come to you in repentance and faith. We pray, Father, that you would show us how deep your love is as we watch Jesus on the cross give up his life for us so that we can be saved. So, Father, teach us now. Do this work in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to sing um, how...